Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 154, recorded on, uh, it's July 13th already, uh, midsummer. And uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, here with another uh, great list of photo geekery stories to geek out with. And my guest is, um, I, he's been on the show so many times, how do I even describe the man? Um, he is geeky and technical. His opinions are wonderful. They embiggen the conversation on this now, another wonderfully cromulent episode of the podcast. Uh, Steve Brazel is here with me. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. You just used words that I honestly never thought I would hear in a podcast, which I love. <laughs> well, hey, they are officially dictionary words now. I can use them. Uh, True. Webster's Dictionary added those words from an episode of the 1990s, uh, one of the seasons of The Simpsons. Uh, and I figured I'd try to cram them into a sentence um, on the fly. And I didn't completely succeed, but that's okay. Uh <laughs> I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, still running around, uh, getting books out the door, as well as lots of other logistical stuff going on here behind the scenes. But uh, happy and healthy, and uh, a little bit creative here and there. Um, I uh, took a slight break on shipping books because I'd been doing it for six weeks straight, nonstop, not a day off. Uh, and I uh, needed to create some content for a presentation that I did for Venus Optics to promote oh, yes. some other Lyowa lenses. Um, but well, not really promote them. They just I, I have them, and they wanted me to do a talk using them for um, high magnification macro photography. And I figured, what better subject than um, cross polarized crystals? And so I did a a brief. Uh, you know, let's let's just be clear of of all the people I know. And I know a few, not everybody would have said, you know, what better subject than cross-polarized crystals? Um, so Jeff yeah. Harmon would have said that. <laughs> uh, and so, well, the thing is, it is beautiful abstract artwork. You know, you might not oh, even think of them as photographs. They look more like abstract paintings than anything. Uh, and technically, there's a bit of setup involved in order to make it work but once you've done it once you've done it a hundred times and so it's just kind of learning the motion and how the puzzle pieces fit together uh, and typically having slightly higher magnification is very helpful so i did a presentation um using those lenses and it turned out really well i'll put a link to the uh um uh the presentation it's recorded and, and free to watch online on the venus optics youtube channel um i'll put that in the show notes so people can yeah, take a look do at that it. and then uh, let me just remind everybody if you you are not following Doncom at Doncom on Twitter, you posted a number of photos and things like that to your Twitter account too. And so people can see them as they go live that way. Yeah. And I, I was hesitant to like, normally when I post stuff on social media, it goes into all the platforms at once. Um, but when I post on like Facebook or Flickr, I write long form. Like I, th there's a full page or more of written text that goes associated with the images. Just didn't have time. So I did post a couple of the images right. and a behind the scenes on Twitter. And you can see that there, but I will be going back and doing some wrong, uh, long form writing, um, in the next little while, once all the books are out the door. And I'm actually looking forward to that. You know, I, I kind of miss, and I've got so many images just backed up that some have been edited, some have not been. Um, and I'm just, uh, trying to get through all of the uh, the obligations, get everybody their books. And if you've gotten your book, and I want to say this before I go any further, um, and you like it, I would very much appreciate if you go to Amazon, 
and I'll put a link in the show notes here as well. Even if you got the physical edition, uh, you can leave a review on the Amazon Kindle edition uh, that's there. And the more reviews for that that I get, uh, the more people are likely to hit the buy button and uh, and get a copy of the book f- uh, for themselves. And that would help me out greatly. So if that's a favor that I could ask of anybody listening to this podcast right now, uh, pause it, go to Amazon, write a nice review, and you will have my unending gratitude. And thank you, Steve, for uh, for chiming in and voicing your opinion on that platform as well. Yeah, I did that. And then I also did an unboxing that's on my YouTube channel. And what I would say is if you if you got his book also, just share it on social media so people know about it that may not, because I've got a lot of photo books. A number of them are behind me when you watch my podcast, you know, where I'm on video or when we stream this show. And a number of of you know photography books that I have. This is an amazing book. And I'm not only saying that because I'm Don's friend and because I care about the guy and I like him, it really is an amazing book. So share it. Anyway. All right. And uh, what is new and happening with you, Steve? Nothing. Just doing the the normal uh, behind the shot stuff. Really still busy with a whole backyard remodel that's gone nuts. Oh, and I did get a new gig, a local arena. Uh, I'm going to be their house photographer. I started the Friday before we recorded this with Snoop Dogg and MS Banda. <laughs> that's awesome. And that was fun. I, I had photographed a Snoop Dogg show before, but here I got to go back and do the trade shots with the general manager of the venue and the artist and and I love doing that type of stuff. And I, I did qu- uh, a question for you: um, at, at a Snoop Dogg concert, what does the air smell like? It's the air. So the first time I photographed him, you could smell it in the room, and he's he's got a blunt in his hand the entire time he's on stage. But going to the dressing room to do the trade shot of Snoop with the and Warren G was there, so we got Warren G in the shot too with the general manager of the venue. That was a room. That was an interesting, so I, I walked in and somebody in the room goes, where do you want to do the photo at? And I said, well, you know, the room is pitch dark, but over by the bar over there, there is uh, some light. So let me go check it over there. And I go over and I take like one test shot against the wall with my flash just to see reflections and stuff. And some guy, some guy walks up to me and goes, you know, he's not going to move, right? I went, ah, okay. So we'll just do it wherever he's at over there on the couch. And it was great. They were super nice. Um, it was, it was really a neat experience. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, and, and congratulations on the gig. I, I hope that there's, uh, you know, that the world is starting to return to normal. And so concerts are, uh, reemerging from virtual, uh, presences. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, the, the mental health of a lot of people really need this, um, we're still not quite here in Ontario yet. We hit, uh, I think, step three of our reopening phase, uh, I believe, on Friday of this week, uh, and and so that's that's looking promising. And uh, and you know, vaccines getting more into people's arms. I'm still awaiting my second. Uh, but wow, uh, the, it's like we're in basking in the light at the end of the tunnel, one step into the light and still one foot into the darkness. It was weird being back in a public location that was pretty much sold out with a bunch of people without masks, but I'm, I am vaccinated, but you know, it's a, it's, it's a neat, small arena. It's not a giant arena. It's like 18,000 seat, but it's an arena with, you know, private boxes and all of that. And they've got, they get some fantastic tours and shows. So I'm excited for that. I'm uh, emceeing our summer concert series here in the city that I, I live in again this year. I've never um, found arenas to be great acoustical locations. However. This one, the size of this one is actually one of my favorite places to shoot. 
the sound is really good. It's not a huge, empty, you know, giant room. Um, the the crew there is great. The stage setup is pretty good. It's a little bit high, but it's pretty good. No, I, it was it was good to be back. I'm I'm anxious for it. In fact, my pick of the week relates to to that. All right. Well, we will save that for the end of the show. Uh, but before we get there, we've got a lot of stories to dig into. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the first story kind of comes in two parts, small sensors and big ones. Um, across the, uh, the the news cycle, I saw that Young Nuo was producing another camera. And uh, previously on this podcast, when they had announced the YN450, which was a couple of years ago, I think, um, that uh, we talked about it and it looks promising, especially from a price point and uh, young new company that makes flashes and, and now lenses, um, uh, you know, a Chinese manufacturer. Inexpensive but flashes that people like. I mean, these are, I, I use them. I love them. Their flashes are, are very inexpensive and they work great. Exactly. And so to see them uh, dabbling into the camera space was very interesting. Now the YN450 had some flaws. Uh, it, it was an Android-based uh, a, a Micro Four Thirds camera that for some reason had a Canon EF mount on it, uh, which didn't really make a lot of sense. They did release a, uh, an upgraded version or just a different version of it that had a uh, proper Micro Four Thirds mount, but none of those were released outside of uh, Asia. Uh, they never well, made and, it to and, North and America. And by the way, what that showed, we, we should revisit one part of that YN450, even though we're going to talk about the, the new one. One of the things that showed to me when that came out is the lack of forethought on the company. If I have, or if I'm willing to buy EF glass, I don't need this as a camera. The odds yeah. are I've already got a Canon camera. I've already got a quote unquote real camera. And they did. So th there was a weird mismatch there. The, uh, well, and I think that the, the camera itself, if you looked at it without a lens on, uh, had this weird big bulge of a mount for the EF mount, but it didn't have any grip at all on it. Uh, and so I, I think that that first, very first camera from them was more of a learning tool than it was a successful product. It still looked cool, though. It, it actually cool. it had a little grip, but it when you look at the back of it, and it's an Android phone, basically, it looked kind of cool with a big lens hanging off. So... The, the premise of having an Android-powered, uh, you know, interchangeable lens camera that was like a, a regular camera, except you could load up all of your Android apps on it, things specially designed for it possibly as well, that intrigued me. Uh, but I never got my hands on one because it just never made it to this market. The YN455 has been announced now, and uh, it is, uh, it's going to be an upgrade on all of the internals uh, in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's going to have um, a, a 20 megapixel sensor versus 16. It's going to have six gigabytes of RAM versus three, uh, an upgraded processor. I believe it's still eight cores, but there's more power there yeah. as well. It's, it's um, an eight core 2.2 uh, Snapdragon SoC. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, spec wise, it's uh, every micro four thirds camera on the market right now is 20 megapixels. So you're not losing anything there. It's got a tilt screen uh, with the previous model didn't. It's not a fully articulating screen, but hey, we're making progress on the uh, usability and the functionality. And it has a much bigger grip with what looks like a fairly comfortable position for a shutter button. It uh, looks like it. I, I'm serious. When I looked at it, it looks like a small Canon body grip. Yeah, it does, and it looks it looks like it might even be comfortable. Um, now it doesn't have a hot shoe, 
and it doesn't have any knobs and dials. Uh, there's a couple of uh, vague buttons on the top that I'm not sure exactly what they do. Everything is designed to be mostly controlled from the touch screen. Uh, and I'm not sure, I, I can't recall, uh, Steve, if it, um, oh yeah, it does have a micro SD card slot. So you do have upgradable memory uh, up to 256 gigabytes, which well, is ridiculous. But it's got 64 gig card. built in. That's and right. 64 uh, gig built in for many people at 20 megapixels is going to mean they won't need an SD card. This is true, but it's also, uh, and I, maybe I want to make this point to camera manufacturers in general, how much would it cost to add some built-in storage onto your cameras? Uh, right. I'm not talking a lot, but there have been times where I've gone out shooting and I forgot my memory card and it just turned into a wonderful hike with a heavy backpack. Um, and well, and I'll, I'll give you an analogy. So when I shoot a concert in my 5D Mark IV, I have a six, uh, which is what, 20, what, 34 meg megapixels, 30, 34 megapixels. Um, when I shoot my 5D Mark IV, I have a 64 gigabyte card inside. Well, a right. 64 gigabyte storage as SSD storage internal isn't that much money. And I, I do agree they should do that. What's also interesting, though, is the, the parts of this that cross over into phone land. First of all, it has a microphone jack. It has a headphone jack, which many phones don't even have now. Right. It's got 4G, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, and a removable battery. This, well, I mean, most cameras have removable batteries. Phones generally don't. So I guess that's a, a crossover on the other side. But um, a 4,400 milliamp hour battery too, which is nothing to laugh at uh, for a body that's as thin uh, as this is for the camera at a price point of 3,888 Chinese won, uh, which is $600 about roughly. Uh, US, roughly. So that's um, that's actually... You know, for a camera that you know, on spec uh, looks to be a fairly serviceable micro four thirds camera uh, for a price point that is sort of right in the the target or I guess the brand of Yang Nuo. I mean, they're always trying to produce something cheaper of serviceable quality. It seems like they might have a hit on their hands unless there's some fault that I can't spot right now. Well, the first camera that we talked about, the 450. That actually never sold outside of China. That was not an international model. So that only sold in China. So the question A is, is this even going to get out of China? But here's my question for you, because I do think if they if they got this marketed internationally, there are people that would buy this. I'm looking right above the last paragraph in the article on Petapixel where they mentioned the price. There is a screenshot of the interface. So when, when Don mentioned earlier that there's no real knobs, right? The reason there's no real knobs is because all the controls are on screen. And it the looks like they handle nicely. It's just I a was, single that's screen. That's exactly what I was going to say. I would love to play with that user interface. That looks really interesting to me. And so to, to, I, to those that are just listening to the podcast, the user interface, there's on the uh, on the right-hand side of the uh, LCD screen, which is where your thumb would probably be, uh, or your finger. I mean, it depends on how you're holding the camera. But... Um, it has it three uh, three different dials. Um, the uh, the rightmost dial is your camera mode, so manual, TV, AV mode, macro mode, macro. There's a portrait yeah. mode, and I'm sure that there's others, just a P mode that we're not seeing, etc. And then so you choose that, and then you slide into your um, <laughs> excuse uh, me. Your, 
your left, uh, uh, one side left onto this sort of reel that will be spinning around. And you can choose your ISO, uh, your f-stop, um, your shutter speed, uh, your exposure compensation, etc. And then the further uh, further layer out is uh, a subset of that. So uh, if you've got ISO selected, then you can go on the, um, uh, the, the the furthest reel and choose what your ISO setting is going to be, 100, right. 200, all the, the way up the to The middle menu is, is really a root menu, and the third menu is the subset of whatever you choose on that middle one. And it looks like it would be just kind of a quick flow to choose your mode, choose your settings, and and dial in those settings very, very easily with just some flicks of your thumb uh, in order to set that up. Now, it's just a simple screenshot. It could function terribly, but it does look like an interesting premise um, from the default camera taking app that is loaded onto this device, because who knows if it does gain notoriety and some uh, public attention, there could be third party apps that are specifically designed for it that could you know, offer different functionality or usability. Let, let me ask you a question. Looking at the, the front of the camera, the front and top screenshot of the camera, it looks above the lens like there's a little teeny flash, but that that might be an IR thing, but it looks like a flash. But on the top, there's the shutter button. There's a button on the other side. I'm not sure what it does. And then behind the shutter button, it appears to be a removable disc. Yes, I, an unknown removable disc, which on, uh, on classic um, cameras would be where there'd be a button cell battery. Uh, on like film cameras uh, or even digital cameras, it, usually there is a button cell somewhere. It's hidden um, and it's not nearly as accessible or attention grabbing as this in order to save the the date and the time on the camera when you don't have a battery installed, for example. Right. Um, so, but but it's got this little ledge on it. Like you could, you know, poke in a little... Um, like a little pry hole. A, a little pry hole. We um, uh, could put like a little spudger in there and... and pop it open and and then whatever you've got a mystery but i i would yeah, assume it's, it is a urd an uh, unidentified UR- removable disc <laughs> there we go um which all the more reason why i want to get my hands on this thing but that that, yes. uh, that, can, that cannot be a flash d that looks like an infrared uh focus assist beam um, that's what i'm that thinking w- would be be on there to help it uh, perform better except in low it's light. the wrong color for an infrared assist beam uh, well, I mean, you don't know what kind of LED is, is in there. Um, yeah, that's true. If, if it's an infrared LED, if it's on, you just won't see it. It just, it's not behind a, a blackened, uh, screen, which normally you would find those to be, but it's on a silver part of the camera. So I guess that's not really necessary. Yeah. Neither is the black unknown disc, right? I mean, so, uh, I don't know if they've really hit. <laughs> every design methodology perfectly on this thing. Um, but it definitely looks like a step in the right direction, especially, you know, young Nuo makes micro four thirds lenses, but I've got some really good micro four thirds glass. Um, the Leica 45 millimeter macro lens, still one of my favorite macro lenses. I've got a lot of Lyola, uh, lenses that are compatible with micro four thirds, either natively or through adapters. Um, and, uh, and the format is just, like, I, I like small cameras for traveling. Uh, and so if I were to be, uh, traveling across Europe, which I've done many times, then I am hesitant to bring my big full frame cameras, not because I, they won't do great work, but because it becomes an inconvenience and I'd right. often, you know, leave it, uh, you know, at, at home air quotes, you know, wherever the home base happens to be and not take it onto the, the, the hikes or down through the streets. Yeah. It's interesting. And 600 bucks is cheap compared to other stuff on the market. 
Yeah, let's talk about that other stuff on the market. Um, also from Petapixel, Large Sense launches the LS45, a full-sized 4x5 large format digital back. Now, I've shot 4x5 film, and it, it's an experience in and of itself. And, and I've done uh, the taco development uh, of the film, which is where you take the film with an elastic or a hairband, and you kind of bend it into a, uh, a taco shape. And then you put it into a regular daylight development tank and you can get like five, uh, you know, four by five um, uh, uh, sheets of film inside of it and uh, and develop it that way. Partway through the development, you can move that uh, that band so that you make sure that the uh, uh, developer gets everywhere it needs to go. And so I've done that. It's inconvenient. And uh, with most things in the film era, I've thought, okay. Digital, if I could adapt digital technology to these really cool old cameras, I would absolutely love it. And now we can. Yep. It's monochrome. Uh, they say that a digital version will be coming in the future. Uh, a, co- a color version. Uh, uh, yes, sorry, a color version. Um, and this is where it gets me. It's only 6.7 megapixels. But you know what? For this type of technology, nobody's making gigantic sensors, right? Like there's so small a market for this. I don't even know how they're making them, but I can tell you that they are made specific and in very low volume. And I can tell you that based on the price, because the fewer you make of something in technology, generally (laughs) speaking, the higher the price is going to be. And for one of these, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) drum roll for one of these four by five 6.7 megapixel monochrome digital backs twenty six thousand dollars us yes thank you very much thirty thousand for the the uh promised color version i want to touch on the 6.7 megapixels because 6.7 megapixels is 50 for this sensor 50 micron pixels. To give you an idea, They're the gigantic. iPhone, depending on the lens that you're talking about, the iPhone that takes amazing pictures nowadays is like a 1.7 meg, uh, uh, micron pixel. 50 micron pixels tells me that while it's only 6.7 megapixels, these are going to be some really darn good pixels, right? I mean, these, these should be amazing. And they have created their own proprietary software that enlarges the image four times with a stated no loss in quality. I don't, I think that's marketing. Um, I don't, I think here's what they're doing. I think these pixels are so large that I think they are effectively taking the large pixels, dividing them up differently, so they're not really adding any data. No, I I mean, I think that part of the benefit here is the fact that it's monochrome and that you don't have any demosaicing process to deal with. And, and thereby, uh, thereby you can uh, algorithmically enhance the resolution much the same way as you can do in a lot of different programs these days. Um, the thing that uh, strikes me as, as interesting is, okay, you've got these massive pixels. These are light collecting, uh, you know, wonders. So this could be something that would, you know, especially for documentary filmmaking, if it could shoot at a high enough frame rate or shoot video, um, or even just which it does, by the way, it does shoot, it does raw photos, it does raw video, DNG raw, and it does something called LSR one full raw, which is the the full raw sensor readout, a dark noise image, a defect map, all of that. And they're saying, here's here's what was weird on the video side, they're actually quoted as saying. 
raw video, quote, near 30 frames per second. What kind of standard is near 30 frames a second? It either has uh, to be or it's not. Well, I mean, you get 24 frames per second is near 30, but but also the... No, uh, they, but then they would have said 24. Sure, but then what is it, like uh, 29.97 frames per second is the, the technical is the standard. standard for it. So Correct. maybe that's, that's what NTSC. referring to. Uh, so I'm not sure about that, but I was talking about the light collecting capabilities of such a gigantic sensor. Unfortunately, um, based on the way that it's designed and I guess the R and D budget that's gone into it because it's a small operation, uh, and they're not going to sell or manufacture a whole lot of them. It's not like Canon where they came out with their, uh, million plus ISO, uh, right. low light monochrome cameras, only an ISO sensitivity up to 2000 which I think is quite a disappointment for what this could potentially be, right? If you've got your, if you've got your pixels that big, why can we yeah. only go to ISO 2000? And that makes me think that they're using uh, old technology, like old uh, uh, process technology to, to create the sensor and nothing that is revolutionary and new and cutting edge. But, well. but the old technology... Uh, to produce these sensors is now available so that this can actually exist at that size at any price. And so I think that's sort of the, the game that we're playing there. It, it records to internal storage CF cards or a an external USB drive. It's got it an Ethernet jack on the side of it too. I'm not sure if that's for data. Um, but yeah, I'm not there. sure. It is 14-bit. Uh, you know, kind of a normal dynamic range. I kind of would have expected more dynamic range based on the, the, the micron size, but, uh, 11.6 to 12.2 on dynamic range. What also surprised me though, was two hours battery life. Well, when you've got a back that big, you can put a honk and battery in there. That that's no issue. But back to your point about the dynamic range being lower, that is also a clue that the process technology of the sensor is old. Yeah, um, I agree. And, uh, and so that also harkens back to the, um, uh, the ISO, but, but think where they could go. Like you say, think of the possibilities here. If, if this is proof of concept in a way and they start using newer technologies, they go up in megapixels, they go up in ISO range and they get that dynamic range upwards to 15, you know, stops. People are going to buy this except for the fact that it's 26, well, but, but here, here's the thing. Um, you know, pe people spend uh, tens of thousands of dollars on camera gear all the time. It just, it has to suit their need right, and their purpose right. and their budget. Uh, and so I'm sure that they'll sell some of these. They won't sell one to me, at least not at that price. Uh, but at the same time, if Father's they, Day. <laughs> if they, if they tripled the price, but uh, allowed the ISO to go to crazy high levels for documentary filmmaking, um, big studios that are, uh, you know, uh, under the umbrella of National Ge uh, Geographic or Discovery or BBC, right. what have you, they'll buy one or they'll rent one or something. I mean, people typically don't buy the, um, uh, the super high speed cameras. They'll rent them for a shoot. And I could see if they pushed into that realm, there would be a market for it. But that market's only possible when you create um, good images to sell the product. And I bring this up because there are sample images on this page on Petapixel. And of course, the link to that will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. But the sample images are using really swirly bokeh lenses, um, the G Clairon 9 slash 305. So that's probably F9 305 millimeter lens um, uh, at various 
f-stops some are more swirly than others but that seems to be the only lens that was used on this camera and it does have a real vintage feel to it um, but there are some really high quality modern schneider glass uh, for the 4x5 image circle and larger that could have produced images that didn't look like they came out of antiquity because you like right. you're putting a digital back on um, on a four by five camera, you, you might want to bring that into this decade or at least this millennium uh, in yeah. terms of the way that things look. Um, and we're just not necessarily seeing that um, from that uh, G. Clairon Schneider Krushnak lens. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I wish them the best. Uh, I hope that this is a financially successful product so that we get to see the next one. But... I, I think that they could have put it in the hands of a seasoned photographer um, because the images really just look like test snapshots uh, to try to, to sell this product. And, you know, they could have had some better marketing material if they just got it in the hands of somebody that really controlled lighting in a perfect portrait studio and just made some really fun dynamic imagery with it. Uh, when you have a sensor that big as well, you have to consider the fact that, uh, and it doesn't say anything about it here, um, you know, uh, can you use a flash with this thing? Uh, I'm going to say no, uh, unless you have uh, a, a leaf shutter in the lens, um, and you might. But some of no, the and in, in the pictures, it's all hot lights in the pictures, right? Uh, and so, like, you're there's no shutter in front of this thing, so you have to have a shutter somewhere else, um, or you have to do some sort of strobing effect, and it's definitely not going to have a, a global electronic shutter. So. Um, yeah. Keep that in mind when you're looking at this type of stuff. But, and this is what I love, it exists. Um, and the fact that it exists today means that the technology will improve in the future so long as it's uh, financially viable to do so. And so good on them, large sense. And this is, by the way, their second product. And I wasn't aware of their first one, which was an even bigger beast. Um, or is it in the article? It was, I think, a 9 by 11 uh, large format sensor was their first product that they had produced. And uh, I, I didn't even dive into the details of how much that thing costs. But um, this company, I wish them all the best. Um, yeah, I, I want to see what they do. No question about it. By the way, yeah. the, the software to process their RAW and their LSR1 RAW is Windows only. So if you're a Mac user, you might want to save your 26000 yeah. <laughs> or you can uh, apply an extra, you know, $1,000 and buy a pretty decent Windows machine. And, yep. uh, and you're not too much above the budget that it would cost to get that camera. Okay, so that's the big and small camera tech of the day. Our other stories getting into it now. Uh, Norway, they've passed a law requiring influencers to label retouched photos on social media, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, number one, I think that there's a, you know, a lot of pressure on body image through social media and um, a lot of retouched images and magazines have been going down this road for a long time, uh, which I am totally uh, in support of, where uh, they'll either not be publishing retouched uh, images that show, you know, slender waistlines from the liquify filter or enlarged or reduced bodily features uh, based on what the, uh, the aesthetics that they're looking for. Or if they do, they have to state that they have been manipulated in some way. So they're taking that to um, influencers and advertisers. And that's really the, the core target for this law uh, in Norway. Now, I didn't, I'll be honest, uh, I didn't read 
the new law. I mean, I don't know if it's there's a translated version, and I don't speak Norwegian, um, but it passed by a 72 to 15 vote. So that's a fairly large margin in support of this. Um, we're reading this on DP Review. Um, what do you think about this in general? Uh, I've got my opinions, but I want to hear yours first. So first of all, according to those in Norway that supported the law, it's to address body pressure in society. And while while I was reading through this, and again, just to reiterate, it's it's not just influencers, it's creatives, influencers, and advertisers that have to disclose retouching or filters. So I have yeah, the filters a, a, a one. That's that's yeah, what I did. exactly. So I have I immediately had two things that stuck out at me. Number one, camera noise reduction smooths out skin because it's blurring and wasn't it there an update out- um uh, to ios or uh, when a new iphone was was released where uh, at least initially it was really softening skin tones yes. noticeably compared to previous products or generations of the software yep and apple had to backpedal that um and, well but, but that, even that's in, the default state of yes um, but even in in my 5d4 when i'm shooting at high iso and i turn on high s high uh, iso noise reduction and i've got multiple settings if I set it high enough, it blurs edges, it blurs skin. Is that going to be considered retouching? And, you know, one of the things that they specify, examples of manipulation are enlarged lips and exaggerated muscles and narrowed waists. Well, you can exaggerate muscles. You can exaggerate a jawline. You can exaggerate a lot of things. Just think Halloween lighting up on somebody's face. You can ex- exaggerate all of that with purely lighting. Is that going to or come focal in? length, it, right? Or focal uh, so length. Like, so if I was shooting a portrait with a 400 millimeter lens, um, which I mean, some people do, uh, but you know, if if that's the case, then it's going to compress a lot of, de- uh, of details that somebody's nose is going to appear smaller. Go the other direction. Uh, what if you shot that same person close up with a 14 millimeter fish? Is that considered it? manipulation, right? And yeah. so, so those were the things that hit me because, as the article states, we're not sure if exposure, brightness, color, or saturation count. But then I read their numbers, and I don't know if this is just Norway, but they gave numbers that say 70,000 kids out of a population of 5.4 million have mental health issues. And this one, this one freaked me out. More than half of 10th grade girls in Oslo schools have mental health issues, and anorexia is the third most common cause of death for young girls. So clearly the body shaming and body issues and body pressure, it's not a minor issue. My fear is that this isn't defined enough. I think that it's a... I, I don't want to say a knee-jerk reaction kind of law. Like it, it, it might on the surface accomplish, uh, you know, the the goal of making sure that these people are aware of um, of manipulation. But how is it enforced, right? So uh, does it mean that if I post a selfie of myself, um, if I don't declare it as being manipulated, if it is? And somebody in Norway sees it because I'm a celebrity, then uh, that person, the, the, the body image mentality, especially from, and I'm, I'm going to put myself in somebody else's sh- uh, shoes and, and maybe I shouldn't do that, but um, 
I remember when I was in in high school, um, the the pressure around me at the time was my circle, like my peers, my my the people that I was directly following, and those were often friends. Well, we didn't really have social media back then, but we did start to have like things like MySpace in that era right. started to come up. Um, but you know, and and Facebook was in its infancy you'd follow your friends, right? And, and celebrities eventually now, uh, obviously that's a thing, but those aren't influencers and they're not advertisers. And so it's really hard to police this down to the level where it's everybody making sure that everybody else is just being honest about themselves. And I think that would, uh, you know, alleviate the problem, but I don't think that's policeable. I, I don't think that that's, that's going to be something that can be solved by passing. I, I agree. And doesn't this blur kind of a weird line? What is the difference between, okay, so this to me is clearly aimed at pictures that are intended to appear real that aren't, right? I'm yep. making this model look thinner than she really is with smoother skin than she really has or they really have. And I'm giving a bad impression to people who then want to reach up and, and see themselves that way. But that blurs the line of what if the picture is just art? Using your selfie example, A, if I shoot a selfie in black and white, I'm changing me. If I shoot a selfie and decide to make it into fine art with an app, right? There's apps that make everything look like a painting. Yeah. Uh, there, there's an app to remove freckles, I'm sure, right? I there's mean, an there app to remove freckles. And in my case, I actually have a full head of hair, but Zoom <laughs> is removing it so that you can't see it. And so, that technology has come such a long way to make it so <laughs> believable, Steve. <laughs> it's amazing. So that's that's my question because failure to comply with this thing is fines and possible imprisonment. I, I think that the, the solution needs to be a roundabout way. Um, you don't go after the advertisers and the influencers. I mean, you do. Um, I, I mean, th that's one vector. But for the average people, you go to the software vendors. You go to Apple. And you say, if you want to sell your phone in Norway, um, when an image is manipulated, it's got to have a particular code applied to it, right? Um, and that code or some sort of like data verification that it's uh, original, unmodified, what have you. And, and there might need to be a standard across all the industry for that, but also the app. The, the social media platforms like Instagram, for example, um, if an Instagram filter is applied or if the photo is not in its native format from the device that is posting it, right, then the app would have a legislated requirement. And this is my hypothesis. This is my proposal here to automatically tag that image as being manipulated. Except social media strips metadata. So... But, but yes, if, if you if made every it illegal, app. if you made it illegal for uh, for Instagram to operate in Norway, unless they had yes. the the photo on the phone itself being from the phone itself, being like a native raw format from the phone itself, or can otherwise prove that it hasn't been manipulated in any way, then right. by legislation, you could make Instagram put a flag on the post by law. Otherwise, nobody in Norway uses Instagram. And you can legislate, you can pass a law that does that. Now that's, yep. That maybe that's too draconian, um, but if a big business wants to operate in a country, then they'll have to comply, right? Yes, and and really, your solution is the solution. 
It has to be metadata in the image that anytime it's run through an app, that app, whatever it is, Photoshop to an app on a phone, simply adds, flips a bit. And if that bit is flipped, everybody knows, and the soft, you know, the, the, the social media online platforms can notify people, as opposed to leaving it up to self-policing of, oh, I forgot to make a note. Right, right. I posted it quick from my phone, and I forgot in the caption to say, you know, modified image, please don't kill me. Yeah. Okay. So, Norway, uh, adopt this law, see how it goes, but I think you'll be changing it in the future, or at least other countries will see how this goes and adopt different laws. And and I think we need it, uh, honestly. Um, I think that truth in advertising is something that has disappeared quite a bit in the last little while, and I'd like to get at least some sense of that back. Um, And I think, and let's let's be clear, I think, I, I don't think this is actually talked about enough. The the advent of social media, photographic and video social media on youth, on their image of themselves, is a problem. Yes. I, I, I applaud Norway for trying to address this. My fear is that they're not doing it with the technology that's available or required in mind. And that's what I want is I want people to address it, understanding the technology that's needed to do it properly. Well said, well said. And and understanding technology and Photoshopping things, um, sometimes it's a necessity to, to put things together. Other times it can kind of backfire uh, as the U.S. intelligence agency has just discovered by Photoshopping the cover photo of a diversity report. And so I read the headline on this article and then I looked at the photo and just say, okay, what's Photoshopped? And I say, that blind man is not in there. And that woman in the wheelchair, she doesn't belong there either. These are obviously for, I mean, it doesn't require a real trained eye to see the lighting on the man with the with the seeing eye dog is completely different from everything else. And the woman is clearly at an incorrect perspective for the, the scene in the photograph as it was taken. Um, and so I looked at that and I was thinking, okay, well, let's say, you know, of course, we're, we're coming through a pandemic and, and you wanted to publish this report on diversity. Maybe you just couldn't get everybody together and you had to photograph people in different locations and combine them together. And you know what? It's the idea of inclusiveness that they're trying to talk about here. And, and I think that that's fine if they are showing legitimately that all of these people are employees of the U.S. intelligence agency. They are not. These are Three separate stock photos, one with a div- yeah, diverse n- group of Not one of them, not one person out of these 19 are. Well, that's not to say that one of them might be, uh, but they're no, hired we know actors. That, we from- know that they're not. Did, well, did well, you I mean, yes. every single yeah, one of okay, them? I, I mean, point, one of yeah. them might have a day job at the CIA, uh, right. but then Moonlights as a model. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, it could happen. Could happen. It could happen. Uh, uh, so, but... We, we can, I think, safely assume that none of these people are uh, intelligence uh, employees. So that that is really the crux of this one for me. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, but this is sort of that truth in advertising idea where if these were all employees, but you had to Photoshop them together to be in the same place because we just came, came through a pandemic, you would get a pass. The fact that not a single one of them, they're just stock photos trying to represent this diversity um, by faking it on the cover of a report about diversity for shame. Well, except 
I'm I'm going to, and it's gonna fail. But but I'm gonna do my best to defend the intent behind the photograph. Again, let me state clearly, it's not gonna work, but I'm gonna try. <laughs> so you've got three st- Shutterstock photos. The the large photo of the 17 people is portrait of multicultural office staff standing in lobby. And then they added the blind man with the dog and and the wheelchair-bound woman. But here's what's interesting. That's two out of 17 have disabilities. And the actual number, if you actually read the article where they're talking about what the report says and the percentages. So one of the key figures in this 52-page report is that the percentage of people with disabilities in the intelligence community's civilian workforce has increased in 2019 from 11.5 to 11.9%. Well, based on this picture and the fact that they chose to add two people with disabilities to 17, that's 11.8%. Actual number is 11.9. So technically, this is a an, this is a fairly accurate representation of the dispersion of people in the community. And none of them are in the community, Steve. Okay, again, I said it was going <laughs> to fail up front. Did I forget that? <laughs> but but you see my point. I mean, at least they went, should we add three people or should we add two people? Well, if we add two people, I'm making, I'm pretending that they actually thought this deep. If we add two people, that's going to be the right percentage. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to give them credit for that. Uh, that is, that's, yeah, you know what, that that is getting, <laughs> I, I remember I, there was a, a physics test that I had in, in high school. And I remember this well because I got the question wrong. Um, but the the teacher had said, okay, well, uh, and he tried to make physics fun. It's like, okay, there is a, uh, a deadly laser pointed at all of the students all in a row. And it's just about to burn through everybody's head. You're the student at the front of the line. And you can hold up a plate. In that plate, you can make a hole. How uh, how big does that hole have to be and how far away from your head do you have to put it for diffraction to make that laser beam undeadly and save everybody's life? Um, and so I tried to do the math and I failed. But I put in a little caveat at the end. I said, um, if the laser beam is strong enough to burn through everybody's heads and I'm strong enough to poke a hole in a plate, that beam is going to burn through that plate in a fraction of a second and kill everybody anyhow. And I got full marks for the question. But I don't think they get full marks for your caveat here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, But at least I poked a little hole in the plate. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for that, Steve. Let's move on to our uh, our next story. This one also comes in in two parts. Just software outside of Adobe to talk about briefly. And I tried to download the first one for whatever reason. I couldn't get access to it to, to the beta. But ACDC, uh, the acronym ACD, and then the word C. Uh, they really, as a company in 2021, need to come up with a better name. Um, I understand the play on words from the mid to early 90s, but come on, guys. Um, they've released a free beta, uh, beta of Gemstone, its brand new Photoshop competitor. I watched the videos on this. For everything that they were showing, it looks shockingly similar to Photoshop. I mean, so shockingly that I would almost expect them to get a letter from Adobe's lawyers. Uh, Mike, I am okay. I am so glad you just said that. <laughs> I literally looked at it and went, they, they, they haven't been sued? It is... <laughs> 
The tool placement, the little triangles that show that a tool pops out to more tools, the way the where they put the histogram to the lay, it is the only thing I would say is, and nothing personal to the Windows users out there, but some of the some of the UI elements are really clunky. Like there's times where you see uh, uh, an eyedropper, and the eyedropper looks like it was drawn in an old icon editor. Sure. Um, and, and who knows if they're doing certain things to skirt around Adobe's patents um, by going back to things that might have had prior art and, and what have you. But I don't know. I have no idea. But it looks fundamentally in almost every way like yeah. a very good Photoshop replacement. And that gets me excited. So I, I want to go and try to sign up for the beta. You've got to put in your email address and it just gave me an error. So I don't know, maybe they're full up on beta testers at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if anybody listening would have greater success, but you can find the link uh, to the story at photogeekweekly.com. And uh, I, I was curious, I, I don't think, especially as a first run product and as a beta, that it would have something like focus stacking, which is one of the things that I still need to use uh, Photoshop for. Uh, yeah, there's other software that does it, but you know, for handheld work, it's still gonna be the de facto solid for me. If they can roll that technology into this, and I've got other pieces of software that could handle digital asset management, uh, like you know, on one, and, and have a plugin to transfer between these two programs, I I don't need Adobe anymore. I mean, yes, I still use it for some things, but there's there's alternatives to Premiere, there's alternatives to Audition and Illustrator right. and uh, and InDesign and everything else. I mean, I only ever use InDesign when I'm making a book, and I'm not planning on doing another one anytime soon. Um, so I think that if this is a success, um, I want to I want to put a spotlight from the audience of this podcast on this. I want you guys to go out and try to test this. And it's a beta, so it's probably going to break or uh, not function completely properly at different times. But I also want a project like this to succeed um, because for all the other image editors out there, they have not replaced Photoshop. They've been doing all sorts of wonderful, uh, you know, point adjustments on images and, uh, you know, local adjustments, graduated adjustments on raw files. And they do have a raw editor in this that handles all of that. But they have a core functionality of like lasso selections around subjects and knocking out backgrounds and putting in text and, and blending modes, all the same blending modes that Photoshop has, by the way. Um, and so that that core functionality of Photoshop that it has grown up with, nothing else on the market has replicated until now. So we've got that. We also have Darktable 3.6, which is free software. Um, it's open source and it's added significant usability and performance improvements, uh, including, and I don't really know what um, uh, what the ratio corrected demosaicing algorithm is all about. I haven't had the chance to dive into that. It was on my to-do list, but there's only so much time in each day. R real um, quick though, before, before you go deep on Darktable, yeah. there's a couple things I want to point out on the ACDC uh, sure. gemstone. First of all, the name, come on. Gemstone's not a great name for an image editor, but that said, there the beta has support for 500 cameras. My question is, you know, Adobe tends to, Mac OS tends to, meaning Apple, tends to release fairly quick updates to raw support. Question is, is, is ACDC gonna keep that up to date quickly? They've included a lot of stuff from Photo Studio and, and their editor products. It, but this is a Windows-only app. 
And being Windows only, <laughs> we, 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 uh, understood. It does have one thing Photoshop doesn't have. It has sharpen adjustment layers. That's really kind of cool. It was interesting if you watch the videos, two things. Number one, when he opened an image in one of the videos, it was the, I think, the Alec Watson review. It opened in an ACR, Adobe Camera Raw looking interface. Yep. That again, just like the app is similar to Photoshop, this was like a direct freaking ripoff of Camera Raw. But did you watch the videos? I did. Okay. The, the, there are three videos. There's an Alec Watson review, and then there is a layer, layered editing one and a layered editing two. In layered editing one and two, the music came out of both speakers. The person's voice was left channel only. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I realize the software is a beta, but if you release a video where you didn't make sure the vocal was dual channel, that was a little weird to me. Um, but anyway, but that, that, that might've been like a, a third party and they, they couldn't fix it in time for publication. I'm not sure, but, but Hey, that, yeah. that just shows you there's stuff to be worked out. And, but I, I want everybody to take a look at it, uh, is, is what I'm saying. And yeah. uh, I mean, and, and, I got no skin in the game, but I, I would rather not be paying Adobe, uh, an exorbitant amount of money every month for the software that they provide me. Well, um, but and, and on Mac, we have alternatives already, like Affinity Photo or Pixelmator Pro or great products, you know. But they don't go into that same level of, like, document design stuff that Photoshop is known for. No, and they don't do 3D. Now, this software actually has frequency separation built in, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to experimenting with it. I really am. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, it's, it says four gigabytes of RAM is required. I don't think any computers Eight recommended. Uh, are, yeah, uh, yeah are, have anything less than that. Um, and a DirectX 10 compatible graphics adapter. So it Easy. does do GPU processing, but it means it's using the GPU, which is great. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's look forward to that. I, and I just want to briefly mention Darktable uh, 3.6. It's not a software that I think I'm going to use, but the fact that raw image editing uh, in the open source community is getting better. Um, in fact, they they now have uh, data color and X-Rite uh, color checker. The, I, I, occasionally, I mean, when it's required for a client shoot, I'll use my color checker passport, or I've got a color checker nano as well for my macro stuff, uh, which I've had to use for a number of uh, very small product photography shoots um, that unfortunately I can't talk about because they're under NDA. But um, but it's really helpful to have accurate color, and they now recognize uh, those uh, color charts. Um, it's just gotten better in various different ways and it, faster it and Yep. It has two things color-wise, uh, aside from color checker support, which I would actually argue in a program like this is huge. But it has color balance RGB, which it will prevent you from pushing your colors outside of acceptable gamma. And it uses luminance mask by default for both for, for uh, shadows, highlights, and midtones. But then they said something that was interesting that I don't know that I understood completely. They referenced real saturation meaning saturation, colorfulness that is relative to lightness. And they reference that most software, when they reference saturation, is actually a setting that alters chroma only and not doesn't, doesn't involve lightness. Because there, there's a... Um, so like if you have a middle gray, um, that middle gray, 50% gray, can hold the most saturation. Um, okay. White can hold zero. Black can hold zero. They cannot be saturated in color, right? Correct. 
but when you get right to the middle of the spectrum, then that color can hold the maximum amount of saturation. But a lot of but software, you're saying you're saying programs like Lightroom and Photoshop don't take that into account, and this does. Is that what I they're don't saying? know? They are saying that. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, okay. But but I do know that like if if I wanted to have the highest saturation of a very bright color, uh, you know, nearing a hundred percent then that might be specific controls that you just don't have control over whether right. or not that's how it's functioning. They also have parametric masking, which is interesting. The ability to include an area or for that matter, exclude an area based on sharpness, which means that if you, you, you could select areas that were already blurry so that when you ran a sharpening routine, you wouldn't sharpen the blurry areas. Well, yeah, Lightroom areas. has that slider as well, the right. masking. It's a masking uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a masking thing. So, I mean, that, that's existed previously, but now that they've got that in an open source program. That, that my um, point exactly. My, my dream uh, is to run Linux, uh, to, to just kind of be in that open source environment where things are vetted a little bit better uh, and I can get security updates from every various and sundry components of the operating system on a regular basis and kind of be on that cutting edge. But I just don't have the software support for the productivity tools that I use right now. And right. yes, I can use Wine for some of them. Please don't email me about that. I understand the ways that you could do it. Um, but I want native support of very good tools in that platform. And we're not there yet. But Darktable is a open source uh, product that can run on Linux, and that makes me happy. And and I would argue Darktable is one of those areas where it's clearly being written by geeks that are trying to push the limits of open source, which is Thank always you. a good thing. Thank you, you wonderful geeks, you. Um, and really? uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love it. it it's, I mean. No, nobody's paying for it. It's a passion project and it's a good one and it's continuing right. to evolve. So sort of like that uh, large sense LS45, that also kind of feels like a passion project for somebody. Uh, and it exists out there in the world at a much higher price than free. Um, but there you go. Final story. Uh, I don't really have a good segue for this one, but I do know that it's patent pending, apparently. Um, reported from DP Review, Jeremy Cowart, they, they the, couldn't quote, see my face just then, right? No, he did the like a hands in the air and rolling his eyes type yeah. of, uh, yeah. So so Jeremy Cowart unveils the quote lithograph and calls it the next evolution of the photograph. Did, did you watch the, the video and the sample images, the sample yes. lithographs, Steve? I did. Um, I, what, I, what, I, what, I, what is a lithograph? Okay, so, well, first of all, it's a video. Okay. First of all, there's a play button and you hit play. And then while you're looking at a still image, the lighting changes. When I say the lighting changes, like in one of them, it was a, a, a young lady sitting there that was entirely backlit. Like she was almost silhouetted and you hit play. I want to stress that because it's a video. You hit play. And then without her moving, you see the lighting change and come in front of her and then side lighting. And I'm going to tell you the immediate thought that I had. And and don't misunderstand me. I love Jeremy Cowart's work. I think Jeremy Cowart is really a, cool looking work is a super smart person. 
However, the first thought that hit me was, this looks like somebody had a model sit there and took, I'm going to make up a number here, 10 shots with 10 different lighting setups, and then did a crossfade of those pictures in a video editing app. And you hit play, and sure enough, that person is sitting there, and the lighting changes and fades from one to the other as the lighting moves around. I'm not saying that's what this is. This is more complex than that. But I'm not sure the effect is much more than that. Yeah, I, I think the effect is just, you know, yeah, you have a, a model that's in exactly the same pose, and uh, and then you you change the lighting in various and different ways to, to create a mood, to create a, um, a an atmosphere. Sometimes it's melancholy, sometimes it's uplifting, sometimes it's empowering, sometimes it's belittling. Whatever that mood that you want to create is, that lighting will change from one to the next to the next. Uh, What's that and, remind you of? Um, well, so uh, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Ted Kinsman, he's got this apparatus, this cool device that has this dome of different lights on it. And, uh, and so you can turn on, uh, like the camera captures, uh, images of whatever the object is that you have, uh, in front of this with, uh, one light on at every different time. And then there's software that interpolates that information that can combine them together to create a really cool surface map of the, um, of the object, a reflection map. I forget what the technology is called off the top of my head. I'm sure if Ted's listening, he'll be screaming it, um, into his car if he's driving somewhere. But anyhow. It's really cool. Uh, museums use this, and they have a lot of fun to create this wonderful uh, kind of 3D experiential view uh, for research purposes for people that can't see the actual object. And even if they can, they might not have access to that amount of information. Um, so, uh, you know, from that perspective, uh, there's kind of prior art. You know, it's patent pending, but, you know, you're just changing the lighting angle uh on the same subject. And if that's what it is, I've already seen that. And it can be useful scientifically. This is an artistic interpretation of that information. But which, which is not a minor distinction, by the way. No, I mean, it is. An artistic interpretation is, I'll go with you there. And by the way, Ted, please drive careful if you are driving in your car. <laughs> but one of the things that he's quoted as saying, meaning Mr. Cowart, is imagine driving past a digital billboard and the light changes completely in those three seconds that you drive past, which means you're driving past a billboard 60 miles an hour. And for three seconds, you're looking at the billboard. That's not safe. No, but also that technology also exists. It's called a lenticular print. <clears throat> Right, right. You know, if you ever walk past some like a, a movie poster, or an advertisement, and it animates as you move from left to right, or it changes from one to another, um, and and so that that has existed since antiquity, almost. I mean, lenticular prints. I remember from my childhood finding them on bookmarks and everything. That's um, right. And so that that needs no new technology, no new digital billboard. You can do that in the analog world as well. Well, and one of the things that they say is that this is very complex and technical to do, but there is a paid tutorial. So let's be, let's be clear. <laughs> this is a commercial enterprise here, which I've got nothing against. I hope he makes a fortune. But again, is, when I looked at it, it's, it's not a photograph that's changing. It's a movie you have to hit play on, and it's a crossfade effectively. It's a, it's a very short crossfade 
causing the light to look like it's smoothly move, moving around a subject. Now, it would be interesting if you could uh, make it interactive, right? You know, in its current rendition, it's a video. <clears throat> but what if I could move my cursor around or gamify it, like I'm pressing different keys in the keyboard to activate uh, different lighting, and I could just kind of press these different keys, and it kind of splashes these different lights or this different Like mode. a Lytro camera? Um well, no, no, not, not exactly. Uh, it, well, yeah, you could change the focus. But what I'm saying is like if I'm just randomly mashing the keyboard and just kind of playing it like a piano almost, that would have an impact on, on the oh, image. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, or, or basically have the, the image maybe cued to music, right? So you can pull up any image. Um, that has a bunch of different states that could be activated by different tones in a song. And the the photo would play differently, sort of like a, a visualization effect from Winamp way back when, where it would have all these crazy visuals and things, but it would be a photograph in so many different ways that would, uh, you know, take on the mood of the music possibly. And so that could be an interesting application of this technology. Maybe I should patent that version myself. Um, because that, that well, um, if anybody does try to patent it, uh, my description of that right now might be entered into evidence as possible prior art. So um, <laughs> it's who knows? Something's, gonna, it, it, something's always going to come back at you. And again, uh, I, I think, let, let, me, let me stress, the photos or the, the uh, litographs, which were inspired by cinemagraphs. Let's be clear. It's, it, he states they were inspired by cinemagraphs. He came up with this in 2014 and says he didn't realize what he had at the time. But it not only changes direction. We should also mention, obviously, because it's, it's different light setups. It changes direction. The lighting changes temperature. The lighting changes angle. All kinds of different things. I wish him well, and they do look super, super cool. They're kind of I yeah. just don't. I don't know that it's going to take off any more than cinemagraphs did for a short period. Yes. And I don't remember seeing cinemagraphs much in the past year or two, really. They just kind of a splash in the pan and, uh, and they were there and I'm sure they still exist, but not in my, I pull them up periodically on the Apple TV because there is a cinemagraph app on the Apple TV. I forget the website that hosts cinemagraphs, but, uh, and so you can put them up and it's almost like a screensaver and just watch them go. Cool. Well, Steve, um, we're about to get into the picks of the week, and I know you're a little bit short on time uh, recording this, so I don't want to belabor it too much, but I really want people to know where they can get more Steve Brazel. So you can get uh, me at stevebrazel.com. It's the same as the country Brazil, but two L's. All my links are there. Social media on Instagram or Twitter, it's at Steve Brazel. Again, same as the country Brazil, but two L's. And then the podcast is behindtheshot.tv, and it's at Behind the Shot TV on Instagram or Twitter. We've got some great episodes coming up, some great ones that are out there. One of the ones that's going to be coming up is with our friend uh, Freddie Clark. And we talk a little bit about uh, a workshop that we're doing in New Orleans that's coming out in uh, October. It's the Wanderers Photo Workshop. It's me and Freddie and Aunt Pruitt and Andrew Scrivani uh, of the New York Times. Uh, he's a New York Times food contributor. And it's a multi-genre workshop in... Uh, New Orleans, that's going to be just a blast. It's wanderersphoto.com if you want more info on that. All-inclusive, not cheap, but it's multi-genre, multi-day, and going to be a blast in New Orleans. And then uh, I've got a guy coming up on the podcast who is the Who's tour, meaning the band The Who, tour photographer. 
And he photographed the cover of Stevie Ray Vaughan's The Sky is Crying album. And we're going to dissect the image from the cover of that album. So lots of fun stuff coming up. And of course, we do the uh, monthly critique show on Behind the Shot. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, and so I'm I'm there with uh, Steve's voice and usually a uh, guest host. We just had uh, Deborah Sandage on recently, and that was a wonderful episode. And so you can check that out at BehindTheShot.tv. And, and by the way, those shows, you don't have to watch them live. They stay up on my YouTube channel, Behind the Shot on YouTube. And you can always go back and watch past ones. You can learn just as much watching them after they happened. Andy Anatko was on, and Rick Salmon is coming up in August. Looking forward to that one. I really like talking to Rick about photography. Um, but, uh, you know, let, let's talk. You mentioned, oh, Steve, sorry. Uh, about <laughs> it's all good. We, uh, uh, we both are doing workshops. Um, I've got one coming up with, a, and I don't want to just talk about my workshops. My pick of the week. I don't think I've really formally picked them uh, before, but it is Princeton Photo Workshop, uh, a, uh, a group of people out of Princeton, New Jersey, uh, for which I've done a lot of in-person workshops in in the past. But uh, in the pandemic era, I've been doing virtual workshops, but they're getting back into personal workshops now. I still have some virtual ones coming up. They inspire photographers. They teach photographers. They educate uh, photographers in many ways. And anything from landscape and architecture and, um, you know, action photography, uh, traveling around to different places in different cities that you've never been before with a guide that knows exactly where some great photo ops are going to be, uh, as well as post-processing and so many different workshops. Princeton Photo Workshop is what I, I'm making the pick of the week um, uh, for me. And, uh, and and it is somewhat of a selfish pick because I do have two upcoming workshops. Uh, I've got one, uh, you know, it, this remote learning. I'm not going to go down to Princeton in the next little while, uh, uh, while at least as of right now, our borders are still closed. Um, but uh, I've got a macro photography workshop, and that is uh, coming up in September, September um, uh, 18th, 25th, and then into October 2nd and 9th. But I also have my Vision Beyond Seeing workshop, which is uh, October 17th through to November 11th. Um, and both of these, uh, they're a ton of fun. Uh, I try to get as, um, as hands-on as I can remotely uh, by giving assignments and critiquing the work and doing some live demos if I'm able to. And, um, and so, you know, you get to get inside my head as a photographer by signing up for these particular workshops. Um, and, and, you know, there's usually a limited amount of people because obviously we all have to interact. And so it's not going to be me preaching to an audience. Uh, it's more of a roundtable discussion type of thing as best as we can make it. Uh, and Steve, you've been on one in the past. You kind of uh, sort of audited one. Uh, you kind of uh, sat in the peanut gallery and, and you, you enjoyed that, right? I, I sat through Don's uh, water droplet refraction uh, photography workshop. Absolutely loved it. The reason I audited that one was because, and it's because of Freddie Clark and Don that this happened. They introduced me to the folks over at Princeton and I did a workshop there earlier this year on live event action photography that went great. Again, it was a remote learning thing, went great. And uh, yeah, I th the people that run it are some of the nicest people that you will meet. And they've got great instructors, great classes. So yeah, I, I second exactly what you said. And I'll put a link to all of the content that Princeton Photo Workshop is um, is putting out there, all the the stuff that they uh, allow you to sign up for and learn from and, and uh, hopefully be inspired by. Uh, and I'll put a little side link to the ones that I'll be involved with too, just because I'm selfish. Um, and I'd like people to sign up for that and be a part of the experiences that I'm offering. 
Um, you teased your pick of the week, Steve, at the very beginning of this episode. What is it? So when I took this gig with the arena, I, uh, for normally shooting through the radio station, I tend to avoid what's called front of house or soundboard shoots, which is when you're photographing a concert, you're either usually in the photo pit, which is right at the end, like your elbows on the stage. There's a gap between the audience and the stage that security stands, and there's a barricade that keeps the audience back, and you've got a couple of feet in there for security to move back and forth in front of the stage and catch crowd surfers. And that's normally where we photograph a concert, from the photo pit. But on occasion, there is either an artist or a venue that, for one reason or another, has a shoot from where the large mixing board is that's mixing the sound for the audience. And that's usually about halfway back in arena, maybe a little bit past halfway. It's called a soundboard or, or front of house. And I knew that while I personally tend to avoid soundboard shoots, if I'm shooting for a venue, there are going to be times that they need me there to shoot from the soundboard. So I wanted to get longer glass. When I'm that far away, usually what I'll do is I will either rent from Canon Professional Services a 402.8, or I use my 70 to 200 with a 2.0 teleconverter, giving me effectively 400 at a, a 5.6 aperture. Yep. But both Tamron and Sigma have 150 to 600 lenses. They're almost identical. There are some differences. I bought the Sigma version of the... Uh, 150 to 600. It's an F5 to 6.3. I bought the contemporary version. There is also a sports version. The sports version has better weather sealing. Well, it also has a nearly $1,000 increase in price. Correct. Right now, the sports version for a Canon EF mount, and these lenses are available for Canon, Nikon, or Sigma SA mounts. It's $1,849 for the sports version, but the contemporary version, which you lose, um, it's a different kind of a foot, on the lens, a different kind of a, a um, uh, can't think of the word I'm looking for, but you lose the weather ceiling, et cetera. This lens is normally 1089 and right now it's on sale for 899 US. That's a good price that, for that range. It I used it with Snoop and MS Bonda on Friday for the first time, and I can honestly say it worked really, really well, and I did it handheld. Unlike the 402.8 from Canon, which after a while your elbow hurts, I could handhold this all night with no problem. Very, very light. Uh, overall, very, very happy with what it does. So that's uh, a good range, 150 to 600 millimeters. It's f5 to 6.3. So you're not terribly fast glass, but you know if it was any faster than that, it would weigh twice as much and it wouldn't be nearly yep. as useful for that kind of scenario. Uh, optical stabilizer, I'm assuming some of the best that... Uh, Sigma can put out there. I don't know if there's a difference between the contemporary and the sports in terms of the optic stabilizer performance, um, but it is a great lens. And if I were, Steve, if I were to buy a uh, telephoto lens um, and I were to have to choose between the sports and contemporary, even if they were the same price, you know, the contemporary might win over just because it's a smaller size. And if you're going to be using that lens for a long period of time in a fluid and uh, flexible changing scenario, you'd want a lens that's, you know, it's a little bit more nimble. And I think well, that's and, what you and get. And to give you an idea, the contemporary is four pounds, whereas the sports version is six and a third pounds. 
so it's a significant increase in weight and, and you're holding yeah. this the whole time if you're shooting a concert it's not like you're really going to be on a monopod or tripod i mean maybe a monopod but um i i would uh, opt to be shooting that uh, pretty well handheld so long as the equipment uh could uh, behave well enough for it because you want to just kind of be kind of dodging and ducking and raising and lowering because you want to find exactly that angle as the uh, action is constantly changing. I don't know if I was how active active is Snoop Dogg on the stage though. It's, it's not him. It's me because I had to work my way around the corral that we were at at the soundboard because there were a whole bunch of people with television cameras. Right. And so I, I was, I was off shooting the trade shot in the room with Snoop and the general manager. And when I came back, front row was full. So I had to zoom between people from standing behind them, which was somewhat difficult. And I would say I would use the sports version if I was, you know, outside shooting wildlife in the rain on a regular. Yes. But for me, for, for 900 bucks, this is a lot of lens for 900 bucks and it will do what I need. And there is a uh, teleconverter that they have, a 1.4 times teleconverter, and they have it as a bundle. It's backordered on B&H that I'm seeing right now uh, for $1,289 if you need a little bit of extra reach. Um, but a lot of autofocus performs quite well if you throw that teleconverter on now. And that's why uh, Canon has uh, has come out with very small aperture super telephoto lenses on their own platform because autofocus is not beholden to the uh, classical limitations um, of the phase detection autofocus like we used to have. So yep. uh, yeah, there's lo- lots of uh, lots of room to grow in this space. And thank you, Steve, for that pick of the week. And thank you to everybody that's been listening to this podcast. We do this weekly. Um, the, the dates that we record is always somewhat uh, flexible, at least it is right now. I hope I can get onto a slightly better schedule uh, once things settle down a little bit. But Steve, thank you for being the guest on this episode. It's always a delight to have you on the show. Uh, and to everybody listening, please give your feedback of any you know, any commentary. Just throw it on the, uh, on the website, on the show notes. Add your thoughts to what we've talked about. I'm always happy when people do that. And I've seen some comments recently. And so please continue and with all that said we are at the end of another episode of photo geek weekly so uh, for those vaccinated i mean maybe you want to get out and shoot but i'm still not completely so the tagline for now is still it's time to stay in and shoot (laughs) 